0: The surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about the intersection of criticism and creativity. Today on the show, I am joined by the great author, bookmaker, and critic Johanna Drucker. Johanna is currently a professor in the information studies department at UCLA and has written about everything from the history of the alphabet to digital aesthetics to book culture to information visualization. But I first came to her work, like I bet many of you have also, through her writing on design history. She's the co-author with Emily McVarish of Graphic Design History, A Critical Guide, which is truly one of the best if not the best, graphic design history textbook. I'm pretty sure it's been mentioned on the podcast a few times already, and it's one that has meant a lot to me personally. So in this episode, we talk about design history and the thinking that went into that book and how she thought about uh, structuring that and talking about designed objects. But we also talk about writing and why she studied printmaking in college, even though she wanted to to be a writer uh, because she was in, wanted to be involved in every aspect of the bookmaking process. We also talk about her career as both an artist and an academic and that balance or intersection or overlap or kind of interplay between the critical and the creative. Johanna is just so smart and so thoughtful and this was a true honor to finally have her on the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links, and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you like the show and want to help with its ongoing production, I hope that you would consider joining. Thank you for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Johanna Drucker. kind of want to start back going all the way back to your your time in undergrad when you got a bfa in printmaking Mm -hmm. um and that is actually not something that i knew before i had started uh preparing for this and i'm interested in what you were interested in uh at that time when you were 18 19 years old um kind of thinking about art and being an artist and printmaking. What were your uh, ambitions at the time? What were you interested in? What was it about printmaking that that excited you? Where? How did you kind of f- find your way into that, that space?
1: Sure. I got into printmaking because I'm a writer, and I was writing mm. from the time I was a child. And so for me... Uh, the idea that I might be able to use and understand the means of production to mm. produce a book was, you know, just incredible. And when I went to California College of Arts and Crafts, there was a woman named Betsy Davids, still a friend of mine, who was a writer and teaching creative writing. And she acquired a printing press, a Vandercook Proof mm. Press. For the school, first for herself, but then for the school, and began to teach uh, the uh, a combination of studio and creative writing practice. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven.
0: uh, (laughs) You know, it's
1: like you know, as a young writer, imagine this is you know, nineteen seventy one, nineteen seventy two. There was no digital typesetting equipment. Mm -hmm. The only way you could transform a typewritten or manuscript text into something that looked legitimately like print was to have photo typesetting done or to have some kind of commercial work done. Um, And so getting access to letterpress and being able to set my own language in type and then print it was extraordinary. It's hard Mm. to imagine now, given the amount of digital output that everyone is used to that the legitimacy that was conferred on a text by being able to pull a piece of paper through the press and see it in typeset Mm -hmm. form was extraordinary we we, it was just legitimating in a way that that wasn't um you know wasn't common and so um so that experience was fundamental to my identity as a writer But then I think the other thing that happened was that the experience of handset type and of learning how to do letterpress um, exposed me to the physicality of type Mm -hmm. and to its potential as a as a formal medium and rather than merely being interested in using letterpress as a reproductive medium i became interested in it as um you know a design medium but also a generative medium so i think that was somewhat unusual um even at the time
0: (laughs) but i find it so fascinating and i hope this this isn't too reductive that you uh saw printmaking and kind of saw this work first as a means to an end for your writing not as an artistic medium on its own
1: yeah exactly
0: Uh, and so did you I I guess I have kind of two questions around that and you started answering the first one which is kind of you realizing that this was a art form of its own and that you you kind of were became interested in the materiality but I want to talk about the writing side for a second because you you mentioned that you were writing since you were a kid you you saw yourself as a writer you you wanted to be a writer why why did you go into printmaking <laughs> you know like what was it about the the production side that intrigued you then too you know what I mean
1: sure I think you know I was a writer and I still am. You know, it's like what I do right, every day. But right. um, you know, I wanted to make books, and I think mm. the other thing that happened was that um, pretty early on. You know, even with the very first book I did in 1972, but there were a couple of broadsides before that um, where I became really more sensitive to kind of typographic variation and you know how things worked on a page. But within a book space, it was like, wow, what is a book? Like, how does a book work? How how is it right. organized? What is sequence? What's development? What are echoes, repetitions, and variations? You know, all of these things. And it's like, you know, book space. Most people, you know, most people write a text and it ends up in a book. But I would say almost right. all of the books that I have done, with with the possible exception of the very first one, which I was still not not fully articulating <laughs> book space. But are yeah. are were books that were written it, uh, to think about the space of the book, like what does a book do? Right. And, right. you know, that's, that again I think is pretty unusual not that many people write books most people (laughs) write text and then somebody else designs Mm -hmm. them and they go into a book and you know I mean there are exceptions of course and there's historical precedents for this as well I didn't know those at the time what did I know you know I had read a lot of Henry James and you know (laughs) uh, Louisa May Alcott and, and the Brontes and you know they were not book designers you know they were they were writers so I didn't even have a sense of book design. I mean, that wasn't, I couldn't have, I couldn't have used that vocabulary at the age of 18. It it just didn't, didn't have a, a place in my, in my world. And And I often, you know, jokingly, but partly seriously say, because I didn't even know Mallarmé at the time, but later I say, you know, my work is a cross between Mallarmé and the tabloid press. You know, it's Mm, like, mm, I love the National Enquirer, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's a kind of graphical writing space. It's, you know, it screams at you and, um, you know. And it understands graphical language as a way to, you know, score a text. Um, But um, so, you know, gradually coming to understand what it meant um, to make a book and use a book space was part of the experience of the 70s for me. And, you know, at the time, the term artist book wasn't really Mm. current um even Mm -hmm. if you know now everybody kind of tracks artist books to Ruchet in 1963 as a kind of conceptual art point of origin we didn't think about that in early in the early 1970s we did know about conceptual art i mean my my you know, teachers were pounding conceptual art into our heads, and and mm-hmm. that was fine. You know, I was like, oh, ideas, yeah, ideas. You know, um, <laughs> and 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 that made sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but we were still, you know, steeped in high modernism. I mean, it was still the era of you know Picasso and Cezanne and Rothko mm-hmm. and Motherwell, and you know, um, a tiny little handful of women artists. I mean, Judy Chicago was made fun of Helen Frankenthaler was like okay she's okay but second rate nobody talked about Lee Krasner and you know the great Americans the the, you know the people who were you know um, you know part of early 20th century that whole Ashcan school and the whole documentary sensibility discounted completely, you know, so it was a, an era when the canonical, you know, sort of paradigms were really strong. And, um, you know, I mean, you have to realize we didn't even have women, you know, except for Betsy, we didn't have women professors, you know, even mm-hmm. when I went to grad school, mm-hmm. there were no women for me to work with. It's, you know, that the world was very different.
0: I, I have two questions about that. Um, and, and this is a way I, I kind of want to talk about your time in grad school but I have one question before that I, I find it so interesting how you're talking about that you were interested in the form of the book itself mm-hmm. and that you were specifically writing and making books and I, I I think there's something really fascinating here about you being a writer but also interested in the shape of the container mm-hmm. and I'm I guess the question that I'm kind of interested in or um, would love to hear you talk more about is as you start to see typography or books and or design, we could even say, as a form of art in and of itself, how did that or did it at all change or influence how you thought about writing or the type of writing you were doing? Did that then come back? You know, kind of circle back to influence the writing, which was the thing you were interested in first.
1: Sure. I mean, one of the things I became fascinated by, and this also went back to my, you know, childhood. Um, I don't know I was about 10 or 11 when I discovered you know the paratext it's like oh my (laughs) god what is that you know it's like footnotes marginalia oh you know here is like the (laughs) the true you know sort of occult realm of you know intertextuality as some esoteric form and Mm -hmm. so you know once I started to see you know how those conversations took place on a page and in a book I was like wow wow, that is, that's the stuff, right? It's like, yeah. it took the notion of text as something to be read through into something where it was like, oh no, text has, um, you know, again, a spatial, physical, temporal relationship to its articulation in book space. And it's like, oh, that is a totally different mm. thing. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, typographic scoring was something I started to do, you know, really early, like the, one of the first broadsides I did is a thing, oh, fuck yeah, I wish I could get my hands on it, I have it somewhere. It's called <laughs> Shell on Shore. And it's, it's a little shaped poem in the shape of a seashell on a, um, on a beach. And um, it's, you know, the writing I was doing at the time was so interior and so highly coded that, you know, um, you you can hardly make sense of it. It's very, very um, abstracted. But, you know, it is a visual poem. Um, and again, it's not like we didn't know about visual poetry. I mean, Apollinaire's work was something that we read in high school French. You know, so il pleu. You know that was that was kind mm-hmm, of a canonical mm-hmm. thing, and also um, uh, e. e. Cummings was something we wrote right. in high school. So we knew there were these, you know, grasshopper. We knew there were things that were shaped ho- poems, and you know, Alice in Wonderland has the little mouse tail, right. yeah. and yep. you know, so. But um, but it wasn't common, and um, it was definitely a a kind of you know marginal practice. And, um, so, so anyway, scoring became to me, n- not so much, a. It, it became a way of thinking. It's like, okay, you know, what, mm. you know, what is the text that belongs in that place rather than what is the place the text needs to go to? It's like, how does the place, um, already determine what the text should be?
0: And so then how long, how long after you finished your BFA before you went to UC Berkeley for your master's in, uh, in visual studies. Yeah. Eight, eight years? years.
1: Yeah. Um, and you know, I worked, um, I did a bunch of handmade books and cause I didn't have access to a press, but then I ended up working at right. a place called the West coast print center, um, from 19, the winter of 1975 until the fall of 1977. And that was a facility that had been, um, set up by a group of poets with uh, funding from the national endowment for the arts to provide low-cost printing services for the literary community in the Bay Area. And Mm -hmm. I was one of the first people to work there. I was the staff typesetter. And that meant I typeset everything that came in the door that was being produced. Yeah. Um, and we had a little compu graphic, and you know that was it had no screen. Uh, it had a thirty seven character LED display. <laughs> the text yeah. You were typing was right in front of you. You had no idea what was going to come out until you cut the you know film strip in the canister, developed it, squeezed it up on the wall, and then went oh dang, I forgot to reset the letting and it's, you know, it's, it's 10 on 10 and, you know, or something. Um, so, but, uh, there was a letter press there as well as offset equipment. We learned to use the copy camera, you know, the little, you know, sort of, um, uh, the little offset presses and, and there was a letter press that I could use. So, that was really, um, a terrific opportunity. Plus I, I learned so much about contemporary writing. I mean, there was everything, every kind of writing you can imagine from, you know, the kind of personal confessional workshop poems to amateur, you know, sort of stuff to cutting edge, you know, conceptual procedural language Mm -hmm. writing. So it's a great education and, and, um, you know, Um, and and again learning the equipment as as most of us did in those days we learned how to print and use printing equipment because we wanted to be able to do our own work and we couldn't afford to pay
0: for it right was was the term graphic design a part of this practice or a part of your life was this something that you felt connected to or did that come later this this idea that the stuff that you were doing could be considered graphic design?
1: I didn't think about it. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. at CCAC, there was a design um, track that, you know, you could do a design major. Um, But I didn't take classes in that track because I just wanted to work in the studio. And also was really interested in drawing and um, learning to draw, which has always been really central to my thinking. Yeah. But um, you know, to me, graphic design seemed, you know, seemed very circumscribed by commercial work and yeah. by client-driven yeah. work. So at the time, design didn't feel open-ended. It felt, and I just wasn't good at it. I've never been a good designer. <laughs> and I, I'm not a designer, you know. I see designers, and and they think differently than I do, and I really appreciate it. But you know, I can design writing but i yeah. i'm not a designer and um, you know when i worked as when i taught at berkeley as a grad student and we taught the intro class for all entering environmental design students and we taught drawing rendering mm. architectural mm-hmm. conventions and we also taught some graphic skills and I was very struck by the fact that the students who were really good at organizing a surface, you know, composing a design, were often not very good at drawing. And that it yeah. was almost like two different parts of the brain. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the ones who could really make something exciting as a composition often could not sit down and draw something, you know, to render it or to bring it into being. It's just fascinating. So...
0: That is, you know, that's actually really interesting. I've always felt a little bit like a, like a fake designer because (laughs) I'm not a, I'm not a drawer and I'm not, I'm not very good at it and I've never been very good at it. Um, I've always liked to draw. I've drawn my whole life, but it's definitely, you know, I can't render something in front of me. So that's very interesting to hear you say that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I um, think they're very different skills. So, um, so yeah, I was eight years out of school. I worked a couple of years at the West coast print center and then, um, I traveled for a couple of years. I saved up, you know, my fantastic sum of funds and managed for, I think I had about like $1,700 and 37 cents and managed to travel <laughs> for two years on that money. By, nice you know, by living very cheaply and squatting a house in Amsterdam and in Amsterdam, at first it was in Greece, but in Amsterdam, I, I printed two books. Um, and, um, you know, uh, at that point I was doing really what I considered, I mean, it's so pretentious sounding like theoretical work. Um, mm. and, um, but it mm-hmm. succeeded, <laughs> you know, I managed to convince people that it was significant. So I sold, yeah. sold the book, um, and was able to live a bit on that. Um, and then, you know, I came back to the Bay area and was working. In various jobs, um, in exhibit design, which was really interesting, mm. um, and uh, I worked for the Oakland Museum, and then I mean in a very low level, you know, sort of training position, but then I got a job at the um, East Bay Regional Parks and mm. in their exhibit design. And I loved it, and the people I worked with were terrific. And we did everything from conceiving the designs, interviewing people, constructing them. So it'd be like oh, you cool. know, polishing the wood, you know, finding them, you know, rendering backgrounds, uh, doing interviews, creating didactics. It was a terrific job, but. I decided it was that I should go back to school and um, it was a kind of toss up. Should I, should I go to school or should I stay at the, you know, in the, in the design, in the exhibit design lab. And um, I ended up going to school and I think it was the right thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I would say it's, I think it was the right thing too.
1: Um, <laughs> I became an academic. <laughs>
0: can, can you talk more about that? decision though and what was it what were you hoping to get out of of going back to school and and can you talk a little bit more about the program and what you were doing I read an interview uh that you had given a couple years ago when you mentioned that program and you said that it was this perfect blend of creative and critical practice uh and so I'm kind of curious what that what that was like and what you were kind of doing there
1: Sure. Um, Well, uh, while I was at the Oakland Museum, I discovered this amazing book and I've told this story many times but um, it was sitting on the desk of the um, you know curator in the history department and I was delivering one of those little pink message slips onto his desk and here's this trapezoidal book printed on wallpaper with all kinds of wacky things on it and it was the Mm -hmm. book by Gillette Burgess from 1896 um, the Petit Journal de Refusé and it was truly an amazing Mm -hmm. thing and I asked as part of my training job could I do some research to understand essentially the, you know, the graphic context in which this work could have been conceived and produced. And, you know, that was a pretty sophisticated thing to, to say. And, and they, they kind of went, okay. And they let me work in the archives on Friday afternoons for a couple hours every week, which is really remarkable. Um, and I started to think methodologically, like what, you know, what is this object? How is it read in context? How is it produced? Why? Where Where did the graphic language come from? And I loved doing that work. And then I did a lecture about it at the Oakland Museum. And I thought, wow, this is the work I love. I really want to do this. And so I thought, well, I'll go back to school and I'll study mm-hmm. the history of printing and book arts because I was already still printing books. I'd printed, I don't know how many books by then, five or six or seven, I don't know. And uh, I honestly can't keep track. So um, <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, and so I had, I had you know, done uh, a bunch of printing. I thought, well, I'll, I'll learn, I'll, I'll get an MF, I'll get a master's degree, um, you know, in and be able to teach a bit of history. Um, that that way I can teach studio and history and it'll be fun but what happened was i went to school and within a few months i realized you know that uh, 2 years was not going to be enough that there was so much i wanted to learn and mm-hmm. i you know had these wonderful mentors and again there were no women at that point but i had these lovely male figures who were you know sort of so enthused by my enthusiasm um, and they allowed me to put together an ad hoc interdisciplinary program to do a PhD. And mm. I, you know, so it was really an independent study PhD. Um, mm. Now, the master's program I was in, which was a master's in visual studies, was in the College of Environmental Design. And that's the program where Rudy and Zuzana were my classmates. Right. Right. And, you know, they were, you know, Zuzana was beginning to look at you know, sort of um, graphic design at, um, you know, digital type design, because by then it right, yeah. was 1982, 83 she had gotten well, it's about 82 she had a, uh, yeah, I think like a Lisa or a Matt, God knows what novel it was and, you know, she started to design type and Rudy was talking about doing a magazine, I said don't do a magazine, you'll just lose so <laughs> much money <Right? laughs> Yeah. So again, never take advice from me. I'm like a work. <laughs> and um so but but the masters uh you know didn't have a PhD in sequence. Um and so uh and so Berkeley had a loophole through the grad division that if you were in a masters that did not have a PhD, you could put together if you had five professors who would agree to it an ad hoc program. So that's what I did. Um, I never brought my creative work into my academic work, to be honest. I always kept them really separate. I really didn't want the creative work to have any, to be subject to any kind of academic review. And I wanted my academic work to be judged on its own terms. And, you know, I have, I continue to think that's right. And, I, I really worry about the ac- I, um, academicization of creative practice and the mm. extent to which, you know, sort of critical theory colonizes studio work. And, you know, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I have really mixed feelings about it. Um, you know, I look at some of the people who in my generation are the most inspiring, you know, sort of thinkers and teachers like Susan Howe or Charles Bernstein, and mm-hmm, these are mm-hmm. people who would never get a job now, you know? And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right.
0: I, I, I'm I so glad that you brought this up because this was actually something that I was really curious to ask you about because I, in preparing for this, I had read a profile of you by um, Ellen Lupton, actually, from, I think it was around 1995 in iMagazine. And you were teaching at Yale at the time. And in that, she says, I'm going to just read you the, the quote fr- from her. Uh, Drucker has kept her practice as an artist separate from her work as a scholar. Uh, my colleagues at Yale think it's fine that I make artist books, you say, as long as I don't confuse that with academic publishing. Eventually, it would be great to bring the two ways to, of working closer together. And I found that interesting, and I was cu- my original question was: Have you found a way to bring them together? But I'm kind of curious about this separation and um, how you think about both sides of this this work that you're doing, and and where those overlaps are, and if those overlaps are, you know, how you kind of feel about those overlaps.
1: Right. Well, again, you know, um, when I say I wanted to keep them separate. Um, and I do still keep them separate, mm-hmm. um, the notion was that, you know, academic work has um, a particular set of protocols and requirements and creative work has um, many permissions to it. And I, mm. I felt like mm. I, I could live comfortably with that distinction But when I say I want to bring them together, um, I think about the kind of work I've done in the last couple of years, like, you know, general theory of social relativity, which is clearly Mm. the wackiest book ever. Um, (laughs) It's it's a hybrid, right? It's like, and right now I'm doing a a series of very short pieces that I call critical fictions. And critical fiction Mm. is to criticism what science fiction is to science, right it's like Hmm. it's informed by criticism but it takes the permission of imaginative writing so
0: oh interesting yeah
1: so for instance I just was working on the really short little pieces just because I have so much other work to do these days but I don't (laughs) have a lot of time to to do creative work but I want to keep something going so like Uh yesterday I was writing this little piece about Um, what happened as language became privatized and the, Mm. um, you know, ways in which uh, the utterance of various terms became subject to um, accounting and costs. And you would start to get an invoice every time you used certain language because the all language has these kind of you know, uh, signals in it that go immediately back to its mothership source, right? And right. so the kind of acquisition of vocabulary and even of syntactic constructions by corporate entities in- made it increasingly impossible to actually speak. And you would open hmm. your mouth and try to speak, and you couldn't because you had no money in your language account. Right. <laughs> so- <laughs>
0: So, yeah, yeah, I love that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and we can see yeah. how this could absolutely happen. Right. So yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: So, so when I think about, you know, critical fictions, <laughs> it's like, okay, if I take critical principles, but I let my imagination go, what insights do we have into the world around us? Um, and uh, mm. what understandings can we generate? That go beyond um, so much of what I think of as mechanistic social science, which doesn't interest me in the least.
0: I want to talk more about what you were saying about your feelings about kind of critical theory or or academia colonizing creative practice mm-hmm. um, and that obviously is something that I kind of think about all the time as someone who I kind of like you I guess is kind of straddling both of those those mm-hmm. lines and I think about it – I thought what you said was interesting about creative practice being kind of pushing the boundaries, being expansive, and academia is kind of limits in a way. And I I find that interesting, and I think about my own work, and I think about my own introduction to theory and how it kind of paralyzed my making for a while. Because suddenly there was all these ideas (laughs) and I was like, wait, how do I actually then do anything with this? And so uh, very personally, I was kind of feeling that tension. But then I also think about it with my own students who are in a graphic design program and I'm giving them, you know, theoretical readings and they're kind of like, we just want to get jobs, you know? (laughs) And so I feel like, the the critical side the theoretical side is a way maybe selfishly maybe it doesn't actually do this but to go back to what you're saying about you kind of saw graphic design is too tied to the commercial that in my idealized world bringing in the theory and the criticism is a way to kind of pull it out of that a little bit or maybe rise above selfishly um and i don't know if it actually does that and I'm kind of I kind of just want to hear you talk more sure. about your thoughts around this.
1: Sure. Well, let me go back first to one of the first things that you said. And just to clarify, when I say that you know academic work is constrained in certain ways, what i'm what I'm trying to point towards is that if I'm going to write an academic sentence and this became clear to me right away in grad school, I have to be accountable to the history of you know the discourse in that field i can't just make a statement i have to know is it legitimate can i support it where is the evidence every piece of argument is part of a long cultural history and at first i found that like overwhelmingly paralyzing um, and as I'm sitting here right now, I'm working on this oh, Jesus-like monster book I've been working on for basically 40 years. But it's finally—it's <laughs> this historiography of the alphabet, right? Which it's just mm. a monster. And it's like yeah. you know the 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 amount of citation, the weight of citation is so heavy that I can barely lift a sentence, right? It's like Argh. Um, And with creative Mm -hmm. work, I don't have that obligation. I I can make a statement like language became privatized and we all had to, you know, open accounts and like I don't have to cite anybody for that. Right. Right. So it's it's so that's really the distinction I make is that is the responsibility that you have in academic writing um, to the discourse but um, to go back to what you're saying, and I think this is so important, right? It's like, why did I love reading theory? And it was because it gave me ideas that were mm-hmm. meta reflections and critical insights I had never had. It gave me a whole new language. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I felt like that was very, very empowering, but also inspiring. It's like, oh, now I can think about how thinking works. I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, I mean... Yeah. And I can think about how, you know, cultural activities work and discourses and, you know, what does it mean? I remember the first time I read, you know, I guess it was a Foucault's and said, you know, there are things that cannot be said within certain, mm. you know, rhetorical paradigms. I mm-hmm. thought, what mm-hmm. does that mean? It was so useful to contemplate. And once you understand some basic principles like that, the world changes, you know, it's like, right. I would say ideology yeah. 101 has, you know, basically, you know, three things in it. It's like in who's in, you know, the more something appears to be natural, the more it's cultural. And then second mm. is in whose interests is it for that to be the case? Right. Th- those are the yeah. things you really need to know to unpack ideology. <laughs> right. But, yeah. but to do that, you know, is, you know, again, if you don't, if no one's ever said that to you, No one's ever given you those intellectual tools. You don't even know how to see that what appears to be um, is something that is constructed. You know, it just appears to be. So those tools were so exciting to me and so transformative to my understanding of what it meant to be in the world that, you know, theory was addictive beyond anything. But where I see the problem in the current world is that, You know, um, there's a kind of didacticism to theory when it becomes Mm. prescriptive. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like I used to say, because I taught this hybrid class, not exactly even a class, it was a forum I did at Yale to bring um, uh, studio practitioners from their uh, studio programs together with the art history uh, doctoral students I was working with. And I used to say, you know, when we would talk theory and so forth, I said, and and then when the doctoral students sit down to write, they have to remember all of this. And when the studio students go back and start to work, they have to forget it all. And or at least release <laughs> oh, like that. release themselves from it. Yeah. Because otherwise they're making work that's circumscribed by already known principles. And you know it's like mm. how is that interesting you know what does it show us that we don't already know and you know the great virtue of the arts is to you know give us the possibility of having experience because we know that habit is what takes experience away right and it's not it's not routine i mean routine can be the most liberating because it's like, you're so attuned to the familiar that you see every nuance of difference within it. But it's, you know um, I mean, the 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 great hazard of, of culture is that it keeps us from um, having our lives, right? We don't get to have our lives because right. we're always imagining that it's supposed, our lives are supposed to be lived according to this or that, or we're hurtling forward right. or back or, you know, So so with the art stuff, and and what's amazing to me is that you can still, you know, go to the galleries um, on any Saturday afternoon and see 40 shows of which 35 are completely uninteresting, you know, three are sort of Mm -hmm. something and one blows your mind and you go, wow, wow, that is really interesting. That, That really is, you know, thought in form that manifests itself in a way that makes me see the way I see differently like wow yeah how's that happen
0: yeah that yeah that's uh, I yeah I'm 100% with you on that something it, I really liked what you were talking about about um ideology and and when things appear natural and something that's been helpful to me or or, or at, least, at the very least interesting to me that I especially always talk about with my students is this kind of definition that I've been using for design lately Mm -hmm. is that design is ideologies made artifact. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) That it is kind of taking these particular ideologies, point of views, ways of looking at the world and making them real by creating, you know, giving them physicality, giving them something concrete. Uh, And that's been a way for me to help kind of Think about the work that I do, not as a writer or a theorist or an academic, but as as a maker. Yeah. As that that's been a way that's been helpful. And and I actually, I didn't mean to exactly kind of connect this to uh, to your uh, your graphic design history book, but you have something in there where you say that um, graphic artifacts always serve a purpose or contain an agenda, um, no matter how neutral they appear to be, and I, I would love to m- maybe kind of turn this conversation to history a little bit sure. and, and and to that graphic design history book, because I love that book so much. Um, it's my favorite design history book. It's come up on this podcast many times. People recommend it, uh, guests recommend it often. And something that I've been thinking about a lot lately and talking to a lot of people uh, on a lot of recent episodes is how we talk about design history, um, so much of, my own education, the design history was, uh, showing slides of posters and, and objects and talking about them as aesthetic objects and not talking about that agenda or that kind of critical side that, that I think you were talking about. And And it sounds like, you know, even when you were kind of studying the history of printing, you were interested in these things. And I'm I'm interested in how you think about when you were putting that book together and even just generally looking at these objects throughout history, how we talk about them as not just aesthetic objects, as not just uh, things to look at, but as pieces of culture that Mean something bigger,
1: no, I mean, I think the question really is how do we think about graphic design, and is there something you know specific um you know, the history of graphic design? is there something specific to that history um that requires um methodological shift from the ways in which art history which is kind of the mm, model mm-hmm. on which graphic design mm-hmm. history was based um, a shift away from that, that model. Um, and um, I just want to tell you a couple little things about that book. First of all, I love that book. And I love that book <laughs> because I did it with Emily McVarish and Emily is a consummate designer. Now that woman is mm. a designer. She's also a writer yeah. and a thinker, but that book is so beautifully designed yeah. and we, we did something unusual with that because typically when you write a textbook um, with a big textbook company like Pearson Prentice Hall, you go to them with an idea, you develop it with them, and then they publish it. And I had said to Emily, I want to do this book the way we want to do it, and then we'll find someone to publish it. So mm-hmm. we, and that was a, a perfect example of our being able to write to the page. So if you if you look the way the writing works in there, it is structured to go with the images and to create a rhetorical form um, in the way that, you know, the phrasing works and the chunks work and the images work. Mm. So, you know, I think designers, we were thinking very much about young designers and students who are not going to read long bits of, you know, long parts of the text. So we're like, okay, we've got this red, you know, line that goes through. If they read nothing but that, that's fine. If they want to read captions, that's fine. If they want to look at bullet points, that's fine. Um, and so we were really trying to think about different kinds of reader experiences in structuring that work. Mm-hmm. And um, also a joke, and this is kind of a joke now between me and Emily, but... When, uh, when I started that project, and I had done the, a class at Yale um, called Critical Dialogue, the Intersection of Modern Art and Design, that was the f- kind of first iteration of a lot of that thinking. And, uh-huh. and I said to Emily oh, you know what, let's write a little book on the history of graphic design. It'll just be <laughs> principles, like just the critical principles. So if you look in that book and you look at the principles that are at the beginning of each chapter, that was sort of yeah. what I thought we were going to write, and then a little gloss <laughs> on those. And poor Emily, oh, she said, funny. I know, she said yes to me. And then, it's <laughs> like, we got into this thing. And again, it was a monster. Um, and, um, but, um, but I think... Uh, So I love that book in many, many ways. But I think in other ways, it failed to do something I really wanted, um, which Mm. was to try to demonstrate, because it's so hard, which was to try to demonstrate that works works. Um, There's are two methodological points. One is that works should not be read simply as figures, right, which is Mm -hmm. how we tend to read them, but they should be read as expressions of a ground. And that means that Mm. rather than see graphic design as the expression of individual talent, and so forth, graphic design artifacts should be seen within a systemic understanding of the context of conditions that bring them into being. Yes. So hard to do. And to do that, we would essentially have had to take like one or two objects per chapter and really show that. And yeah. it, it's it's hard work. Um, it's what I had done with the petit journal de refusé, which was mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. not read it as a thing in itself, but read it as an expression of, you know, conditions within which the vocabulary it expresses were available. So that's that's the first principle: is to to not read figures, but to read ground. And the second principle is not to read what is. But to ask the question of how. And we know we do this all the time with mm. our students, right? It's like you don't mm-hmm. say, what does the poem mean, or what does the artwork mean, or how does it look, but how does it do the work it's doing? What is its rhetorical operation? Right. How does it do it? And they can't get there. It takes them a really long time to understand that, you know, there's a there's a set of performative dimensions to all yeah. aesthetic artifacts it's really really difficult mm-hmm. so those are the two methodological issues and i'm not sure that we managed to do that in that book um, to the extent that i w- would like to um you know uh but we did we, you know we tried and i think the honestly i think that emily's designed does a great deal to push that forward by the ways in which the works are put into dialogue with each other in the yeah. design of the book so um so I, feel, I always feel really good celebrating that book because i feel like it's really emily's work that i'm celebrating <laughs> writing i mean i yeah. can write you know you want something written you know like give, give me an hour you know but <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah you have me thinking about a lot of things <laughs> right now I think what you're talking about about the figure in the ground uh, makes a lot of sense to me and that one seems a little bit I I don't mean to say that it's easier but that one I think is easier for me to wrap my head around how one would do that Mm -hmm. than the what not what is but how i find that question very interesting and you are and i and the reason i find it interesting is because it's it it's so nicely puts into words something that i struggle with with my students all the time is i've been trying to think about how to do that um but i didn't have the word i didn't have the the kind of language that you just put it into um how do you do that? <laughs>
1: sure. Well, I mean, again, if I go back to, you know, um, you know, let, let's, let's take an example that, you know, is, is, is familiar enough that we could work with it. you know, like let's take the, um, famous Doyle, Dane and Birnbach, you know, uh, uh VW ads, right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. everybody knows them, right. And, mm-hmm. and so forth. And you start to say, well, okay, we get that, that, you know there's a joke here how do we know it's a joke how do we know that there's a kind of wink wink going on in this particular text we can see there's a wink wink right that there's a you know i know mm-hmm. that you know that this and that and then you start to talk about the way in which the kind of chain of references the frames that you know make a joke a joke are actually structured into that image right it's like where are they structured how is that indicated to you how do you know how to read this and it's like well there's something about the way the type is you know you the 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 large size type is used as a kind of you know blunt statement well blunt statement but it's not a blunt statement we can tell it's you know i mean so you start to ask you ask you know sort of what is the work you know what are the ways in which um you know, the, 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 the image and, and design are telling you how to read it. You know, what, what are those things? Um, and so the how is really the formal instantiation. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the classic exercises that I used to do with my students, because I did teach occasionally a little bit of design without a license. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is that again, to go back to my favorite National Enquirer, um, is that you take, you know, the front page of the National Enquirer and you take the front page of the Wall Street Journal and you tell the students, okay, you're going to have to switch these. All the language on the Wall Street Journal is going to be put into National Enquirer language and all the National Enquirer language is going to be put into the Wall Street Journal. Suddenly the how of how things work is really clear. Right,
0: right, (laughs) right. Um, oh yeah that's great yeah
1: you know but you know it's the performativity of materials too i mean again my favorite example is the stop sign you know if you render a stop sign on yeah. a piece of paper in a red magic marker and you stick it up with a thumbtack nobody's going to stop of course if you put up a regular <laughs> stop sign in la nobody's going to stop either But that's a different. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> they're in violation of something at least
0: you know you had mentioned that you've taught design a little bit without a license And, and that was something that I wanted to ask you about um teaching now and kind of thinking about this conversation I was interested in what type of students you are teaching now are these are you teaching students who will be practicing artists and designers or are these more uh writer academic Students.
1: You know, actually, neither. The students I mm. have now, who are among my favorite students ever, though I've always enjoyed my students, um, are professional students. They're going to be librarians, archivists, data curators, oh. moving image archives uh, workers, mm. and, um, and so forth. So I teach in what used to be the library school, and information studies is um, you know, that rubric now. Oh, and okay. so, um, you know, I still have the letterpress and we do use it and students <laughs> love it. You know, they come to the door of the, of the shop. The shop is teeny tiny. It's kind of like teaching letterpress <laughs> in a submarine, but, um, they come to the door of the shop and they're like, Oh my God, what is this? Um, right. And, uh, and I teach, I do teach like an intro to cultural memory practices, a class called artifacts and cultures, and there I bring in anthropology, art, history, linguistics, psychology, you know, like you know document right, right. history, you know all kinds of stuff um but uh, I think you know, um, and I teach history of the book, and i teach uh, the the charge to my position was to be sure that special collections are integrated into the education of these students, so I do a lot of work mm-hmm. with special collections materials, which, you know, is really like taking, you know, kids to a candy shop. Um, right. And, you know, it's like, oh, here's another treasure yeah. and another treasure. Um, but I've taught, you know, I taught a course on alphabet books in the children's book collection. I've taught modern art of the book many times. I do teach mm. artist books, though so I'm sick to death of that. I taught a class on, <sighs> Gender, genre and the 17th and 18th centuries. That was really fun. Mm. Um, you know, so, you know, and, and that was really great. It's like, how can you see gender inscribed in genres and in design? Yeah. And um, so that was that was great. And so I teach, you know, and I teach a lot of work on visualization. I do the data right. information and visualization stuff. But this quarter, I'm also teaching a class that I'm really excited about. And maybe it's a topic we should touch on as we're coming to the end here. And uh, it's a course on sustainability, mm, and yeah. which seems to me to be like probably the most important top. <laughs> and so, sustainability um, is, I think, a little bit too often taken to simply mean how do we come up with alternative energy sources. Right rather than being a term that allows us to look systemically at every aspect of cultural activity. And it's not Mm -hmm. just our massive dependence on fossil fuels, which is, of course, leading us into catastrophic global uh, conditions, But it's all the other things that go along with this that have to do with human rights abuses and labor abuses and, you know, um, exploitation of natural resources and the destruction of habitat and species abuse. And, you know, the the kind of problems of replenishing labor supplies um, in a condition where education is increasingly threatened and. You know, what do we do with conservation? What do we do with historic buildings and sites? Um, You know, so sustainability, Mm -hmm. to me, um, touches on every single human system, because the basic definition of sustainability is a system that replenishes its resources as quickly as it uses them. And Mm. so, you know, that means every cultural system. It isn't just about energy.
0: Right. Right yeah that's so interesting, and especially in graphic design, sustainability often gets reduced to how do we use less paper or less ink exactly uh and and I had this professor at Micah Christian bjornard, who I had on the the podcast also to talk about sustainability it's It's a big research area for him, and he kind of flips the question uh and I think about this all the time is sustainability. What we should be asking is, what are the things that we want to sustain?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I find that to be an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. And it makes it more than just, well, let's use recycled paper. Exactly. Let's use less ink. Let's not print as much. It becomes uh, much more about the system and the culture around it of ha- yeah. what are the things that we want to last to replenish themselves in that, that yeah. the definition that you said. So what what kind of students are, are you teaching this too this is for the librarians yeah yeah i'm doing it
1: um within the information professions because again i Mm. mean just you know people often are aware but in denial about the uh costs of their own undertakings yeah and you know we're all complicit we're all hideously complicit and you know people have this idea that oh we'll digitize things and that takes care of the problem (laughs) and it's like Okay, more pollution is generated by the server farms, you know, in London than any other aspect of the city's activities. And so how do we deal with this? How do we get real around, you know, these issues? And so I think the first the first place we get real around them is education and becoming aware. Mm -hmm. But as you were saying, you know, I think we have to really face some some realities, which is. Our level of consumption, especially first world, especially America, is just mm-hmm. unsustainable in every sense. And it has to stop. Mm-hmm. And it's going to stop through violence. It's going to stop through catastrophe, chaos, and violence. And it didn't have to. It could have stopped through, you know, yeah. rational yeah. behavior and, and correction. But that didn't happen. And now it's, you know, we're, we're in the worst worst place in my lifetime. You know, I mean, it's, it's terrifying on a daily basis. Yeah. And, you know, there you are, you know, with a young family and thinking, you know, yeah. right, what's ahead? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I think design has a real role to play in this because I think redesigning the world is our
0: challenge right Right. it's a
1: design problem with an ethical core (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. you're exactly i mean you're exactly right and and i'm i i try not to be one of those people that's like oh design can save the world design everything is a design problem but if we think about what we were talking about earlier as design being a ideology made artifact what is the ideology (laughs) that we need to make artifact right now it's that the world isn't in a good place right. right now we need to we need to shift that and if you think about it that way it is a design problem it
1: is it's a, it's a fundamental design problem which is you know again not thinking instrumentally about how do we solve the problem it's instead an intellectual and ethical Issue, which is how do mm-hmm. we rethink what the problem is so that as we begin to recon you know to 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 design the world differently we're not thinking about solving a problem we're thinking about restructuring our fundamental relationship to the ecosystems you know of of the world around us that's very very mm-hmm. different right and so, yeah. I'm, so I'm yeah. against kind of instrumental understandings of sustainability that to say well we'll do this and that will change that it's like no it isn't that simple it it requires a rethinking of you know the fundamental understanding of what it is to you know live as a living creature as part of living systems and right. you know, it's uh it's 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 a huge it's a huge problem and the first thing we have to do is stop thinking that human beings are, are other than the rest of, of the living planet. <laughs> right.
0: Right. Right. So um, at the risk of not ending this conversation on like, on like the darkest note, um, I have two more questions. Sure. One, one kind of connects back to what we were talking about when you we were talking about your students and teaching and kind of connecting to what we were just talking about, because I feel like the theme of this conversation is this intersection of the creative and the critical, um, the artist and the academic, the the practitioner and the theorist. And what kind of struck me throughout this conversation is that you, at a very early age, saw yourself as a writer. You you wanted to be a writer. You're interested in words. And then you went into printmaking, into design, into typography, because you wanted to take this this uh, content. I, I don't mean to use such a, a kind of cheap sounding word. The stuff that you were making, you wanted to put the container around it. And I am kind of the opposite of that. I was really interested in the container, in the the design side. And then the more I got into that, I went the other way and wanted to make the stuff that went inside it mm-hmm. also. <laughs> and I was kind of curious about... Um, and we started talking about when you're talking about students is kind of, as both of us coming from opposite sides, how does that mean that we are kind of approach it in a classroom setting differently? You know what I mean?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, you know, do you have a thought on that? Sure. You know, I don't actually, to be, to be fair, I don't actually think in terms of container and partly because Mm. one of the things about, um, the books I've done is that they, you know, it's not like I have content and then I put it into something. It's like the, the process of developing the content comes along with developing the form. So it's really right. a, a, a dialogue back and forth. Um, and, you know, like one of the classes I teach, and I've done this, you know, both in a university setting, but I've done it in other settings, um, is I teach a class on um, graphic novels, and getting mm-hmm. uh, people to, to make their own graphic novels. So and I'm not a big graphic novel reader, but, um, but you know, it's, it's really, really um, fun to uh, take people who have almost no background in drawing or design mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. work with them to develop a, a vocabulary of their own. Right. So like the first exercise is like, okay, if three minutes, draw a character. And there's not, you know, no preparation or anything, just draw a character. Like it doesn't matter what it is. And, um, mm-hmm. and so then everybody draws something interesting, you know, it's just inevitably it's interesting and you start to look at these things and sort of say, well, what's working here and what's working there and why is this so appealing and why is that, you know, giving us this feeling and sensation and so forth. And, you know, to, to do that kind of development and one of the things that tends to happen in the course of that, that looks like an incidental byproduct, but which I think is fundamental, is that since the, the participants get so absorbed, in because it's all right then, you know, they don't go home to do it, it's like right then, right there, um, is they get mm-hmm. so absorbed that they don't want to stop. Right. Right. And for many of the people that I am involved with in a pedagogical way, they've never had the experience of that kind of flow. They've never Mm -hmm. been inside Mm -hmm. a process to the point where Mm -hmm. it's like they're sitting there thinking, yeah, I know I need to eat. Yeah, I know I need to I need to pee. Oh, I need a drink of water. But just just. One more just one more minute, right? I yeah. just let yeah, me yeah, do this. Yeah, yeah. And and so I think, you know, one of the things that we do in pedagogy is to give people access to that kind of creative experience, right? Um, so for me, teaching, you know, has so many aspects to it. Um, you know, part of it is is modeling behavior, you know, how do you how do you demonstrate respect and engagement? So that you, I, I've done improv work. Um, and in improv, oh, interesting. Yeah. In improv, um, one of the things you do is what's called yes and. And so yep. no matter what yep. somebody says, you go yes and. And then you kind of like recuperate whatever you <laughs> yeah. want. And it's a perfect pedagogical technique. Nobody is ever negated. So um, you're mm-hmm. always affirming, but transforming. And so, I think you know there's so so many aspects to you know again to teaching um and um, it's true that the students I'm working with now um are they're grown ups they're coming back to school they're getting a professional degree they're juggling families and commutes and jobs and so forth they're highly motivated. Um, And, you know, they will also face exactly the dilemma that you've described, which is they will be reading critical theoretical materials that offer alternative ways of approaching their work, and then they will go to work and need to perform rote tasks according to institutional requirements. And then the question is, how do we make change? Where does change occur? So they are grappling with that all the time. And our program has a very strong social justice mission. And so mm-hmm. for students to try to think about, well, how do you actually you know, make that happen um, is non-trivial. Um, but it starts right. with having yeah. affirmation towards that as a goal. Um, so... You know, I think um, I feel very, very privileged to have these students and to work with them, and it's been a great, like, as a kind of of end-of-career constituency to work with. I really, really like it. There are um, design media art students that I work with some, but um, not quite so much. And then, of course, we have doctoral students um, in our program, Mm -hmm who are, you know, doing work that's, you know, theoretical, historical, um, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, has, you know, uh, academic dimensions to it.
0: My last question, I'm just kind of curious, hopefully this is an, an, a little bit of an easier, shorter question. I'm just curious what you're reading right now.
1: Oh, I just read a really interesting sci-fi um, book uh, hmm. called Rosewater written by a Nigerian author. That was lots of fun. Hmm. And now I'm reading um, a book by a French guy who is called Les Rêves de Norbert Wiener. And it's about the (laughs) fictions that Norbert Wiener wrote that have not been published Um, Mm. And then, I don't know, sitting on my desk is A Universal History of the Destruction of Books. That's cheery. (laughs) Um, I have another one called um, Deaccessioning and Its Discontents, which is a book on deaccessioning practices that used to be taboo um you know mm. i read the new yorker and you know the new yorker show pops and the new york times yeah. and i'm a hopeless news junkie uh, i wish i weren't yeah. but i'm endlessly refreshing my feeds to see whether brexit has uh is going to be avoided whether you know <laughs> right. uh there's still life on earth uh-huh. and you know, whether you can get around town today since the monster was here visiting. Um,
0: so oh, right. That's right. Yesterday. That was this week.
1: Um so and of course I'm endlessly reading for, you know, the the academic projects, mm-hmm. this oh, save me, please, from the alphabet. Um, but you know, the um, the, yeah. the the body of literature on on the alphabet. Um so I don't know, it's not it's it's kind of you know bits and pieces of this and that. I read a lot just for school, you know for fun, I read sci-fi and novels.
0: I wanted to ask about the sci-fi if that was for pleasure oh, yeah. or if that was for the kind of critical fiction that yeah. you were talking about earlier. Sci-fi That's just is for fun.
1: For pleasure, sure, I love sci-fi I love it um, I love it.. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I like novels, but most contemporary fiction doesn't interest me very much. You know, it's like, hmm. it seems tediously bound up in in that normalization stuff that is so like, really, do I really care? Like, if you want to know some <laughs> things I really don't care about, I could list them. Um, but uh, whereas, you know, genre fiction, um, I find is, is actually more efficient and You know, more interesting. Mm. I go back to read classic novels all the time. You know, as I said, I just reread Anna Karenina um, and I'm reading Elmer Gantry. I I got really interested Mm. in, you know, um, the kind of ways in which we understand um, charisma and its effects. I'm interested in what I call fame studies, it's one of my critical fiction. Uh, zones.
0: Mm. So, oh, interesting. Yeah,
1: because it's uh, and again, I really don't think that the mechanistic social sciences have a clue about how affect works um, and why fame is produced the way it is. So um, that's part of the general theory of social relativity. As I said, the the yeah. weirdest book in the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: I think, and I think that is the perfect way. <laughs> to end this conversation Johanna this was so fun oh, and interesting well, for thank me. you. Um,
1: thank you for doing this
0: oh of course I mean like I said before we started recording I've been reading you for you know basically as long as I've been interested in design and so this was a complete pleasure for me and and you gave me so much to think about thank you for being on the podcast thank you this episode was recorded on September 18th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.